McAfee is the device-to-cloud cybersecurity company and a trusted partner for federal government agencies, state and local governments, and education providers. Inspired by the power of working together, McAfee creates solutions that make our world a safer place. By building solutions that work with other companies' products, McAfee helps public sector entities orchestrate cyber environments that are truly integrated where protection, detection, and correction of threats happen simultaneously and collaboratively. For more information, visit McAfee.com slash public sector. Welcome to Securiosity for March 7th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to highlight everything that's taking place at RSA this week. The yearly cybersecurity circus was in full effect all week, and we're going to talk about it all. In our interview, we're going to talk to Christian Lees, CISO at InfoArmor. Christian gets into his role scouring the dark web, figuring out how people's data ended up on the dark web forums. Speaking of the dark web, we're also going to talk to RunSafe CEO Joe Saunders. RunSafe and CyberScoop launched a measure of exploits being sold on the dark web, and we want to talk about it. Cool projects by two cool companies, but first... Let's talk about all the other stuff that happened. The NSA has taken GDRA, a once classified malware analysis tool, and put it in the hands of anyone with an internet connection. There were a lot of buzz about the tool during the week, with private analysts extremely eager to take a look at some of the 1.2 million lines of code. The agency hopes the tool will highlight its defensive mission, that it doesn't just hack foreign networks, but it helps protect American ones. The goal, according to the agency, is to strengthen open source software frameworks used to reverse engineer malicious code. Greg, is this the ultimate takeaway from this year's RSA? Yeah, I think so. This was a pretty big deal. Um, when this was released, uh, there were there was just a ton of security engineers kind of fanboying out over the fact that this I'm tool sure. was out there. And it, it's really interesting because, uh, as a lot of people know, RSA doesn't really have a reputation as being a security engineering conference. So to see this tool drop um, and see the noise around it, I mean, that's going to be the highlight when people say, oh, what was 2019's RSA about? It's, oh, the NSA dropped an open source reverse malware engineering tool. So that's, uh, you know, a a really, really good thing. And I think what's really interesting too is um, Arshan Lingus talked to Rob Joyce a little bit uh, about this. And Rob really wants this tool to be used in an academic sense. He wants to see this tool being used to capture the flags. Like this is a a PR win for the NSA. And obviously the NSA doesn't have a lot of PR wins all the time. (laughs) So um, this is really, really interesting to see the the goodwill around this tool and all the talk about about um, this on the floor at RSA, and everybody was really worked up over it in a good way. Yeah. So another theme to RSA seemed to be ways to go beyond the technology when it comes to cybersecurity. At one event, we heard that CISOs need to figure out how to turn security from the business of no into something that enables functions. Additionally, too few companies have leaders who work together effectively, as evidenced by the number of data breaches originating due to misconfigured cloud servers. Particularly, a lot of what we heard and was talked about in some presentations is the recent story where a researcher found a Dow Jones database containing information on high-risk individuals had been left exposed on an unsecure Elasticsearch server, and that was an example that we heard multiple times in multiple different presentations. 
So Jen, what happened to the cloud making things easier? I think the cloud does make things easier, but the problem is we just don't yet have the talent base to implement it properly. Yeah, um, I that I, I talked about that a lot in the last conversation I had today uh, was with somebody that oversees application security at a company, and it just seemed like we talked a lot about how the defaults that go into these cloud instances, especially if they're like open source, right? Um, it, it, there just needs to be more of an effort into making sure that everything is locked up. AWS does a great job at making sure that the default security configurations are put in place and that it's pretty hard to mess things up. But um, look, developers move so, so fast that when you're deploying something, you're not going to have the same security protocols that you have when you push something out to your actual environment. So that is something that needs to be thought of more. Like, look, move fast and break things is getting to a point now where maybe you shouldn't move lightning fast and breaking things isn't so much as breaking code anymore. Like you're, you're breaking people's data and that data matters. And I think that everybody just needs to slow down when it comes to that stuff. And, you know, and sadly, it's not, it's not the stuff we're doing going forward. We have to sort of take a historical view and look at everything we've put in the cloud and the way it's secured and, and try to fix things. Yeah. Uh, again, things discovered. I, it really speaks to the maturity of the industry that if this industry is going to last and grow up and actually fix some of the systemic problems, I think a lot of it is going to have to come from slowing down and implementing the security that needs to be implemented before we push stuff out to the public. Yeah, and there's a ton of cloud security companies, as we saw on the RSA showroom floor this week. So when it comes to protecting the federal government from cyber attacks, simplicity is not that simple. That was the underlying message Monday during the multiple panels at RSA Public Sector Conference. A number of experts from both the public and private sector discussed different ways to reduce the government's complexity when it comes to cybersecurity. And the conversations quickly went beyond just dealing with legacy tech. Many of the same problems that came with private enterprises, mainly the ability to communicate what exactly is the risk for agencies, are still issues inside the federal government. Greg, you went to this, right? Yes, uh, I did. I was there for this. And it's you know really funny. We talk about uh, the, the business aspect of this. I think in the, the last thing that we talked about, there was the quote of you know, turning security from the business of no into something that enables functions. I really think that that is something that goes on in the government. It's the same conversation, but the risk obviously is entirely different. Like when you talk about business risk in the government, it's it's not just you know to the bottom line or to privacy violations. It's there's you can have the privacy violation aspect of it, but you're you're talking about you know classified material a lot of the time or very sensitive material, whether it's on the civilian or the military side. And they have some of the same problems that a lot of the corporate side does, especially I heard a lot about, you know, bolting on security. This happens both on the public and private sector side. And it's really interesting to me that I heard from a lot of government people that are really taking seriously the need to try to get away from that bolt on network. Like it it just doesn't work with the tech that they have and they need to get to a place 
where security is more holistic. And I think that they are really putting forth the effort to move into that. So it, it was really interesting to hear how they're doing it and, and the fact that it's like top of mind for them. Got it. So if you're looking for a reason to feel optimistic about the future of digital security, consider this. A pair of interns with IBM's red teaming unit uncovered 19 vulnerabilities in the kiosks that companies use to check in visitors into their buildings. The previously undisclosed vulnerabilities could allow a hacker a foothold into a company's network. Several patches for the flaws are either on the way or already issued, and the interns, meanwhile, are still only undergraduates. Jen, were you popping shells when you were an undergraduate? Can't say that I was. Yeah. Um, I mean, most interns, are, you know, grabbing coffee, doing administrative work. It's crazy that these were college kids that were given the keys to go find these vulnerabilities and are getting some name recognition out of it. So good for IBM for not only paying their interns, but giving them a chance to make a name for themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. Jen, do you know of any other companies that do this big or small? You know, I don't, but I certainly meet a lot of um, um, startup, startup executives that sort of got their start. They were they can point you back to being an intern, um, you know, right after high school or during college to where they had some like greater responsibility. Um, you know, somebody on the team recognized their ability to do something and sort of pulled them out and had them join um, something like this. So it's certainly heard of, um, but I don't, I don't know of any like official programs for it. Interesting. I don't know if this is an official program that's tied necessarily to IBM overall, or if this is just in their Red Force unit. Um, but I, so I interviewed the the global lead for IBM's team here yeah. that that was responsible for this, and he was really passionate about making sure that everybody from interns to senior engineers were on the same page and all working together to find different vulnerabilities. I haven't heard those conversations elsewhere. So it was really interesting. And like we said, optimistic to, to hear that coming from IBM. Sure. So, and while you're being optimistic, John Callis, the famed computer security expert who left Apple for the ACLU last year, says things might be looking up for despondent internet users who love the convenience of smartphones, but regret losing control of their data. International legislation has started to adjust for the digital age, Callis says, predicting that users won't tolerate constant location tracking and trade-offs made in the name of efficiency. There are several reasons to expect that corporations and governments will not collect and store personal information without oversight, he said, including Europe's General Data Protection Regulation and recent U.S. court decisions. The good news is that the privacy situation has gotten so bad that people want to change it, Callis said during the RSA presentation. Greg, do you believe what he had to say here? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think that, look, we've talked about all of these um, Facebook issues and social media issues and all of these data exposures when it comes to cloud instances that uh, I think that there is a little bit of uh, sea change going on. So uh, an antidote here... Um, that I tweeted about. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have read this, but I thought that this was really interesting. Uh, one night after RSA, you know, everything's winding down for the day. Uh, Jeff Stone and I, Jeff is one of our reporters, 
uh, or, or we're having a drink at a bar and we were just, you know, talking shop and uh, a woman sitting at the bar next to us, like sort of piped in and uh, was asking what we were talking about, what we did. And we told her that we were cybersecurity journalists and she perked up and was talking about all of the measures that she had taken when it comes to cybersecurity. Now, and now that's great being in San Francisco. You figure that, you know, you're surrounded by tech. So obviously you work in tech and obviously you're going to do that. But it turned out that she was a, a home designer and that she didn't really have any tech background, but that from listening to podcasts and reading the news and seeing everything that's going on, she realizes the risk that she runs by using all of this technology. And it, it, it was an interesting conversation in the fact that she had been paying attention to this story that came out last week that the two the, the phone number that you give Facebook for two-factor authentication is being scraped by Facebook for just advertising reasons. And she was actually really pissed off by that. She was like, I gave this number as part of a security apparatus. I don't need to be scraped. Like, who who am I supposed to trust now? Okay, but shame on you for trusting Facebook ever. Well, yeah. And that's what, and that's what she was uh, getting at in that Wait a minute. All I'm hearing is that the these bigger uh, social media outlets or the, or the bigger tech giants they put out this message that you know we're not evil, we're doing good, that we're going to be able to protect you. So follow us. And then she reads something like that and goes, "Hey, wait a minute! Like w- I, I'm I'm trying to um, use your services, and then you turn around and tell me that you're using it for your own personal gain. Like who am I supposed to trust?" So I think, again, that's, that's an anecdote, but I think it gets back to what John Callis was saying is that people are starting to realize that not everything is meeting up with what the perception is out there. And there are people that want to change the way that this stuff works. And whether it's through regulation or through technology, I think that people are slowly starting to wake up and say, okay, we don't like the way that this you know, ecosystem runs. Let's fix this for the better and, and get things on the right path. But, it, but at the same time, like how mad are you really about any of this? I just like look at, you know, things like tra- like my phone tracking, my movements, where I am, you know, to the point where that could be used to protect um, my credit cards being used because my phone is in California, but my credit card's being used in New York. Um, and then the the transaction gets declined because I'm not because it's not happening in California, or um, I don't know I get murdered or kidnapped or something or lost and someone uses my phone to figure out where it is I I was. I mean it's extreme, but I just kind of I'm not really that mad at at Apple or anybody else for sort of tracking my movements, and I know better than putting things on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Um, you know, that I don't want people to know. I right. So I, I, I think that we, I, I think that there can be a trade-off there. Like, I, I don't think that it has to be one or the other. Like, I think that we can have everybody assess their own risk and say, yes, I want to do this or no, yeah. I, I, I don't want to do this. I think that that's fine. I think it's just a matter of waking up to realizing how all of this ecosystem works. And then once you understand 
how it works. Like you, you don't need to be a technical person in order to understand how all of this works, but you need to have a, a basic understanding of the ecosystem. And once everybody has a basic understanding, you can determine, okay, I don't have a problem if Visa wants to uh, partner with Apple or Facebook to come up with some way to track my location to prevent fraud. I actually welcome that. And that's fine. That's good. I think that that is inherently good. But I think that asking the so what of all of this is really important. If you can hear these stories and go, okay, so what? I I don't care. Then then that's fine. As as long as you know you can digest what's going on when it comes to digital security or privacy or safety and and make that determination on your own. That's fine. I just think you have to be able to have the know-how in order to make that decision for yourself. I guess I would just argue back that the people who are really concerned about this already know and already are consenting to it. Maybe I am thinking too highly of um, the population. I don't think people have, as far as the general population, have a great grasp on how all of these ecosystems work. So that's when I'm why I'm surprised. We talk to so many people in this industry where it's either they are like at the far end of the spectrum when it comes to security and know the ins and outs, ups and downs, and and know what's capable. And then we talk to the general population, and they have no idea. So when I hear somebody come up to us that is not in tech and is just right. a, a consumer and is just like, oh, no, I start to pay attention to this just because I know technology is a part of my life. Like it's not my job it's not really something that I'm immersed in career-wise, but I understand how I interact with it on a day-to-day basis overall. I think that's mainly what I'm I'm getting at, and I don't yeah. think that I don't think that the population is there yet. But I think that they're slowly starting to get there, and I think that that is a good thing. So, with what you're saying, Jen, do you, do do you disagree with me that they're not, or you just think they don't care? You know, I think it's a I think it's a little bit of both. I think that the more this is in the news, the more people will be outraged, but I'm not sure that will change anyone's habits. Like, I just don't, I think if the more Facebook is in the news for, you know, data being breached, phone numbers being used for other purposes, I think in the moment people are are upset, I don't think you're going to see a mass closing of Facebook accounts. And I don't oh, think no. you're going to see a mass request for, um, you know, Facebook to make changes. You know, I, I don't think you're going to get people to like just decide I'm not using an, an iPhone or a smartphone anymore because I'm worried people are tracking me. Um, you know, I've made the decision, you know, having Nest security cameras. Um, I've watched I've watched my living room um, go up on a, a projector screen as I walk into a room. Right. So it's. Um, so I know it's it's hackable, um, but I've made the decision to have them anyway, um, knowing full well they're you know quite possibly somebody could be um, watching me do um, this podcast from my living room, sitting next to my dog. <laughs> right. So I think that you and and this woman that I talked to are actually quite similar. It's just Probably. that you have the 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 tech background to understand it, and you know those trade offs. And I think that. It's just the people that are not in this space understanding those trade-offs, I think, is something that is I, – I, I think that that's welcoming, and I think that's what uh, Callus was getting at. Yeah. There. 
So, okay. <laughs> we, we, we went down a rabbit hole there. Some good conversation, <laughs> but uh, some definitely some other stuff uh, going on this week. Speaking of those um, smart cameras, Jen, researchers at Trend Micro decided to hack one of their colleagues' Uber-connected smart homes to see what they could learn about its underlying protocols. They found a system that was susceptible to manipulation and ill-equipped to detect it. Shoring up some of the sector's protocols and security practices can go a long way in making smart homes, which are now part of modern life, less prone to snooping and tampering. So, Jen, how much did you hear about securing smart buildings and homes during your time at the conference? I would say, I mean, it's it was a probably sort of like a 15% of my time, I would say, that I ran into a company that talked to me about um, securing, and I'm just going to generalize it more to like internet of things. Um, that was certainly a big portion of companies around RSA. Um, you know, I think that's, that's sort of been in the news in companies that I've been seeing, you know, for quite some time. I'm not sure that I've seen anything really great yet. Did you see anything really great? I don't know that I necessarily saw any companies that like had demos that blew me away, but I had a lot of conversations with people who work at like industrial control systems companies and the difference between industrial control system and industrial IOT, like they are related, but there, there are a little bit, there's a little bit of leeway between just an ICS system and like industrial IOT and the industrial IOT you know, you start to get into the smart homes and the building management systems and the stuff that isn't always talked about when you talk about security in this realm. When you talk about ICS, a lot of people automatically gravitate to like the industrial plants, the power grid, oil and gas refineries, things like that. But the building management systems are all part of this this ecosystem too. And then on a smaller level, you're talking about, uh, your smart homes as, as, as well. So, or even not even just your smart homes. If you live in an apartment building, that's just built. Now there's security that needs to go into all the smart products that go into those apartments too. So I think that that's why you're starting to see more and more of this research and more and more of these companies talk about it. And this trend micro research was just, you know, one part of that puzzle that I, I think that you're going to start to see more and more at RSAs in the future. That's definitely going to happen. So Chronicle, the security startup formed by Google's parent company Alphabet, made a play in the threat analysis market and announcing its first commercial product Monday. Chronicle is banking on the power of Google's data storage and search capabilities to give threat intelligence analysts something new in a crowded market. With access to years of network activity, the goal is to uncover breaches that might have spilled through the cracks. So we've heard about this company for a while, but this was the first product announcement. What did you think? So backstory is the product's name from Chronicle. And it's interesting to me in that, yeah, they're really utilizing Google's ability to have unlimited data storage and the search capabilities. And I was talking to some people about it because it seemed like I, I wasn't really sure on who they were competing against. And then uh, I had a conversation with some people that said Splunk is really their competition. And I guess the reason that it, it, there is competition there is while you can search through data with Splunk, even if you're searching with Splunk, it takes a very, very long time to look through log data uh, when it comes to all different types of security searches. 
And basically what Backstory is allowing somebody to do is process that in, I don't want to say if it's real time, I'm not sure, but it's near real time. And that's what gives security analysts that leg up. I mean, imagine being able to search through all of your log data, like the way that you search for a cup of coffee on Google. I mean, that that's really powerful. Now, do I think that this is going to take off? I mean, look, it's Google. So obviously there's, there's going to be a push. There's going to be a marketing push behind it. There was a huge marketing push this week around it. But um, people really like Splunk too. So, uh, and there are a bunch of other tools in there in the marketplace as well that are entrenched into companies and um, security analysts like them. So, hey, we, we, we've seen Google eat people's lunch in plenty of other spots before. Did you happen to talk to the Backstory team? I did not. I was not at the product launch, but our Sean Lingus uh, was was there. But it, I mean, it was very... Because I wondered how close they were to getting to the point where they could sort of automate um, or make decisions um, instead of a human to take action against a threat. So I think that this tool is going to work part and parcel with some other tools. I know that they announced a lot of partnerships. Forgive me. It's, it's late on Thursday. I don't remember all the partnerships that uh, Chronicle announced or companies announced with, uh, with the company. Um, but there are a lot of partnerships. So I think that this tool is going to be able to integrate with some other tools and allow companies to take, uh, uh, that automation and integrate it in and make decisions based off of what backstory is allowing them to to do. So I don't think the automation was necessarily built into the Chronicle platform on its own, but those partnerships are going to help make Chronicle a pretty powerful tool. Yeah, this looks really exciting, actually. So wouldn't be RSA if we talked a little bit about all the nation states uh, making noise this <laughs> week. Uh, it was uncovered that Chinese state media is using Instagram and other sites to overwhelm social media users in the West with flattering coverage about China. More than 40,000 English language social media posts that originated within six state-run Chinese media agencies reached millions of users over four months, concluding in January, according to Recorded Future. In many cases, the ads were flagged as political disinformation only after their runtime had ended, meaning users would have had no way of realizing what they were actually viewing. The subtle approach stands in contrast to more overt Russian efforts to create political divisions among U.S. social media users. Jen, 40,000 posts, that's a significant amount of disinformation. So it is, um, which I always think is really exciting. So I have not um, seen an ad that was... I thought flattering towards China, but maybe I have and just didn't recognize it as being blatantly flattering to China. Do you have an example of one? Uh, so if you go on to CyberScoop, we wrote an article where you can see some of the instances that uh, Recorded Future found. Um, I th- think that I I never personally saw them in, in my own feeds, but I think that it's also really interesting that they're using Instagram as well because – um, I, I, that's, that's a, a savviness to me. It because is. Yeah. We've seen Russia primarily do Facebook and Twitter. Um, and I believe that there was just some, uh, uh announcements 
uh, Thursday, as a matter of fact, that Facebook took down some more disinformation that was aimed uh, at uh, Romania and the United Kingdom that I, I believe looked to be Russian. I, I'm sorry, everybody, if, if I'm wrong on that. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's savvy that China is sticking to a platform that is known to be like a leader in the social media space right now. And they're pushing this information. Instagram. Um, just to see the flattering China coverage. <laughs> it's funny that people are, are pulling information off Instagram that way too. I mean, I don't, I really don't pull news off Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm on Instagram to look at like it's sneakers and stupid videos. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, we're really, really, this is, this is a savvy thing that, that um, China's pulled here. So really, really interesting stuff. So speaking of social media, Twitter is tackling accounts behavior and not necessarily the content the accounts disseminate to determine whether or not a user is misrepresenting their identity. The company is doing this as possible indication an account is used to amplify information operations. While hackers continue to breach international networks to steal trade seekers and conduct espionage, they also use trusted social media outlets to exploit users in a way that is redefining cyber war, according to a panel on information operations held this week. Greg, do you think that's a good practice? I mean, they have to do something. I mean, <laughs> Twitter gets a lot of, of bad press when it comes to just bad bot behavior and, and the ridiculousness that comes out of, of these bot accounts. So looking past the content, I think, is something that they're just going to have to do. So if, if you're looking at, I mean, it's just behavioral analytics. In, in, instead of looking at it from a security aspect, you're looking at it from a disinformation aspect. So we've heard a lot about behavioral analytics this week from companies on the floor, and it's just that same philosophy. If you, you know, if, if you're not going to be able to ever determine bot behavior from the content that is being put out, you might as well find another way to do it. And if you're going to do it from account behavior, whether it's the times that they locked in, the times that they're posting, how fast they're following people, how fast they're tweeting, I, I think that that's a smart way to go about things. So there wasn't a lot of funding news that came across our radar this week. But Jen, I know you were at a really interesting conference at the beginning of the week, this AGC conference. Can you tell us a little more about it? Yeah, so that might actually explain why there wasn't any funding news. So basically, AGC, which is an investment bank um, based out of Boston and probably some other major cities, they have um, a, a not a sole focus, but certainly a focus on cybersecurity. And they tend to, um, at each RSA in a separate conference, gather together um practically the entire venture community that's going to invest in cybersecurity companies. Um, and then any cybersecurity company that um, has sort of been endorsed by um, a venture capitalist, maybe that's because they raise money, maybe that's because they're on a, a watch list. And I'm going to make up a number of the amount of companies, but I want to say something like 60 or 80 companies um, come in and pitch. Um, and they range from companies that are, you know, later stage um, to to raising their first round of capital. And so it's interesting. It's a little bit overwhelming. You get sort of hit by every single possible thing you can think about cybersecurity. Um, and then times two, right? There's always two companies doing something similar. Um, and it's a fun, it's a fun little event to watch. Um, you know, there's three or four rooms full of companies giving giving talks. 
Um, and there's some panels, right? We had a critical infrastructure panel, which, you know, probably is the most important thing in cybersecurity that we, that we look at. The chief security person at Bank of America um, gave a keynote speech and talked about um, what companies really should be focusing on um, to obtain customers like Bank of America, which I thought was really interesting. So it went out and beyond security even. So it did, yeah. So so the first day of security, um, and then the second day, um, which I typically don't attend, um, but it'll open up a little bit more. So you get like IoT, and then you get some general tech things. Because again, you know, most VC funds don't just just concentrate on cybersecurity. Um, so if you're getting them into town, you might as well um, showcase some other really interesting things as well. Um, so the second day typically is is, is spent on um, non cybersecurity related. Um, companies. So that first day of, of security companies, can you talk about any pitches? You don't have to name the companies because I know that this tends to be a little bit secretive, so I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, but can you name any pitches or did you see any interesting pitches from companies that sort of just caught your eye? Yeah. So, so I, I don't think they disclose what companies pitch. So I'm not comfortable doing that. But I will say that, you know, look, there's, there was a, there was a few companies that I funded that were in the mix. Um, so of course I'm going to say those are the most interesting. Um, but you know, everything from, um, from, from companies dealing with SOAR, um, just the threat identification, um, threat scoring, um, really name your, your, your thing. And someone was doing it. Um, you know, we saw, we saw things like, um, mention of that Bloomberg article, um, and how we saw, look, their company pitches, right. So there's not going to be anything like earth shattering. Right. Um, we found in any of them, if, you know, if I'm honest, right, you're talking about, you know, 15 minute pitches, um, where you're going, you're, you're pitching to VCs. So you're going into sort of a little bit of financials, a lot about the management team, um, a little bit about a problem being solved and a lot about the solution and traction. So there's not, there's not a lot of like, wow, there's no big research paper being um, presented um, in any way um, through these. Okay. Interesting stuff though, just from the standpoint of how, you know, something that you said early on there, there were no funding announcements because it seems that everybody came to San Francisco for this conference to try to get funding. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, um, good use of time. Right. So, you know, one of the, one of the big things, one of the big draws for the VCs and for the companies is the ability to, to set up your two days full of one-on-one sessions with each other. Right. So you play matchmaker, you know, you get the bio, like you get my bio and my picture and it talks about the companies I've invested in and, and what I want to invest in. Companies are able to request my time and then I'm able to see, you know, bios of the founders and, you know, company description. I might also be able to see them pitch um, if they're one of the pitching companies, um, you know, and then there's a space for me set up that I can just walk in and sit down and have a conversation with the company, um, you know, get to know them and, and figure out if there's anything we can do there. Cool. Very, very cool. All right. On to our interviews with Christian and Joe. The way this will work is you'll hear Christian first and then we will 
talk with Joe Saunders, CEO of RunSafe Security, about the RunSafe Pwn Index that RunSafe and CyberScoop launched this week. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Christian Lees, the CISO for InfoArmor. Christian, thanks for joining us, and tell us to start off a little bit about what your company focuses on. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, InfoArmor is uh, today an organization uh, that is under the Allstate brand. This happened in October of uh, 2018. Um, InfoArmor was started in 2017 uh, under a seed fund from Washington Mutual. And unfortunately, as we all know, we had the banking collapse, so we had to kind of pivot our market, right? Washington Mutual was consumed by the taxpayers, therefore, hey, boy, we got a big problem, right? Uh, So our organization at that time primarily focused on identity monitoring, identity remediation. Um, Primarily in in the benefits arena, it's not in the consumer space. Uh, you know, uh, my objective was uh, coming in as CISO as, and Chief Intelligence Officer was to add an intelligence stream to our company. Uh, my specialty is underground economy, threat actor space, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's what I'm the most passionate about. It's really what I've lived to do for the last 20 plus years of my life. Um, and I still think it's the most important thing that's going on today, right? I think uh, what's going on in the underground economy is is not only the most dangerous thing to consumers, to brands, but I believe it's probably the most dangerous thing to our nation today. So backing up a little bit there, you said something about you really focus more on benefits than overall consumer data. What exactly does that entail? So what really what it, it, it's just really in reference to the sales cycle. Uh, okay. So Informer itself as a product is not really ready, readily consumable by a consumer. Meaning you can't go to our website and sign up for our services. Okay. It's sold as a benefit. So annually, when you enroll in your benefits, I want dental. I want you know whatever, and I'll take I'll take uh, Informer uh, monitoring. Oftentimes it's it's paid for by employers. So the actual company itself really sees this as, as, a, as a methodology of protecting their brand as well. Uh, because we focus tremendous amounts of time on the underground economy, um, compromised credentials of, of the users. Uh, we know that that's a direct threat vector towards the actual brand itself. So. So in December, your team released a report about the discovery of like 120 million Brazilian taxpayer identities. Walk us through what you found and where that data stands today. If I could back up a moment sure. on what, something that I think is is important. Okay. Um, and some people may or may not agree with me, but uh, you know, I, having been doing this for a greater part of 10, 12 years, strictly focused on the threat actor space, right? compromised data. Yes, there's been some really big data breaches uh, presumably done by threat actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it's worth pointing out that I believe the underground economy is a living organism and um, you know, we ourselves put that data out there technically, right? As an organization, we allow that data to leak. We're the controller of it, right? Threat actors are just there to to capitalize on it. Um, 
now we fast track up to let's say within, within the last three years I've never seen anything like this in terms of leaks right it is a whole new ball game everyone running towards the cloud right if you talk to anyone everyone's like hey we're, you know what's on your agenda this year we're going to the cloud we're going to the cloud why are you going to the cloud it's more secure why is it more secure someone told me right that's literally the conversation I've had a hundred times and I can I can tell you that uh, yeah the, the the threat actor space is is alive and well it's elastic like any other economy you know when our economy is great the you know cybercrime probably is on the down low right threat actors have a real opportunity to, to create wealth uh, because the economy is great and when the economy goes you know kind of south then the underground economy explodes. But something that's that I find of interest in the last two or three years is the damage that has been done by this mad rush to the cloud is astonishing to me, and no one talks about it. Um, if you had a pie, I mean, I mean, this is speculation. If you had a pie, you know, let's just say 20% of that data exposed is threat actors. In my humble opinion, in the last three years, 80% of that data is, is the data that we ourselves exposed. Brazil is a classic example of that, right? Um, misconfiguration, um, lack of ability to understand how to protect the data that you so easily lit into the cloud. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just unproportional. It's, it's, it's just hard to believe what's going on with our mad rash. So with the data that was leaked, is there a, a U.S. equivalent to what this exactly was? Are we talking social security number? Are we talking taxpayer ID number? Like, what is the equivalent there if this leak yeah. were to happen in the U.S.? I mean, phenomenal amount of data inside this data, uh, uh, this, this, this uh, uh, compressed data. Um, the data itself was, uh, I believe, roughly, you know, parsed into eight tar files, and when we put it back together, it essentially equates to 60, almost 70% of the entire country's population. Of wow. Voting records, credit card, I mean, uh, transactions, marriages, you know, everything. So basically everything about, everything. yeah. Yeah, the, like, equivalent to our SSN. Everything that you could possibly have is in there on, on every single person. So how do, I mean, you, you're you sort of saying this is sort of human error and that we're just not configuring things right. How do we fix it? Should somebody be putting out the standards? Should cloud companies be doing a better job of setting things up for clients? You know, I, I, I wish I had the magic bullet. I really do. I really do wish that I had the magic bullet. Um, you know, what I will say is that uh, we found this in March. Uh, we spent a tremendous amount of time trying to find out who is the controller of this data, right? You know, so you mean March 2018? You were at this for almost a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We spent a, a meaningful amount of time trying to, 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 to define who's the owner of this data, right? And, um, you know, basically we just kind of got everyone, we've got it taken care of. Right? There's no need to further, essentially just kind of the shrug off. Um, you know, what, what is the answer? I, 
what's the problem statement? I mean, is it that we have a lack of technology, a lack of ability, making sure whoever is the janitor of your data is the right person? Um, transparency? I, you know, I don't know. Is the answer is it slow roll? Is it, you know, as a security expert, I would say reduce your digital exposure, but I don't think that's going to happen. Right, and so I'm wondering, from your perspective, who who shares the line, share responsibility? Is it cloud providers maybe putting more default security in their cloud instances, or is it on, you know, internally the CISOs internally to turn around and say, okay, you need to understand that moving to the cloud it sounds convenient, but there needs to be certain locks on certain doors and windows before we roll this out to you know. A, a full deployment across the enterprise. Yeah, I, I think it's a valid question. You know, I think sometimes, unfortunately, I believe sometimes that CISOs have the hardest job in in the entire company. Right? They're kind of burdened. They, they really have to kind of measure. What am I doing to the comp? You know, what am I doing to the company? Uh, and that is, it's, it's like it's like treating cancer. Right? You you take that person right to the brink of death with chemo to try and kill the cancer, but you don't want to kill them with chemo. And that's that's kind of the CISO's job, right? Is to make sure that adequate security controls are there and not impede the business, mm-hmm. right? Don't don't stop the revenue. So it's a tough job. I'm not sure it's the, you know, CISOs, uh, largely, I think CISOs anymore, they, we, they write parking tickets and hope, hope that they're cashed. <laughs> it's unfortunate, you know. Um, there are some really, really security-focused organizations, and they have built some incredible data delivery, you know, pipelines that have security first, right? Meaning, at the inception of a project, a technical project, security is 100% involved, right? It doesn't get financed until it has the grace of, of security. I think that these are the changes that we're, we as a technology company, we're kind of, or we as a technology culture we're coming to grips with and, and, and that is like hey you know what maybe we ought to really just you know revenue is important but maybe we really ought to ratchet up security um, and one thing I think that's a great opportunity with uh, on it with cloud provider don't don't get me wrong I'm not anti-cloud I think it's a great way to kind of reset your whole model right a lot of organizations are probably dealing with legacy code legacy systems and data centers it's an easy thing for them to say, all right, I'm going to build the ultimate security environment. I'll do it in the cloud and force everyone out of our data center and push them into this kind of SecOps. You know, I know, I, I know that everyone talks DevOps, DevOps, DevOps. And when I look at everything, it's really kind of SecOps. So I think uh, the answer is slow your roll, get security and start, you know, instill first. Are there any, I mean, given this was a, a, a leak, not a breach, is there anything else um, other than being in the cloud that was common between what you see through leaks? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say, hey, why hasn't the data shown up? You know, you, it's gone. And there's a lot of kind of crazy scenarios like that, right? Why haven't we seen the OPM data? Why haven't we seen the Equifax data? Why haven't we seen, I, I mean, you know, threat actors are smart. And it's hard to say. 
Are you I seeing it on the? Are you seeing any of the Brazil data on the dark web? Not today. That's and that's one of the reasons that we took such a long time in coming to market, right? And that's not our business is to shame organizations, right? Our objective is to find something, work with the controller, get it fixed as quickly as possible, and protect lives. Um, so today, there, there's not indication of it, but I mean it's pretty straightforward. The data was out there, and threat actors at, at this time, you know. They are really, really good at scanning and finding open data. Like if they're like, hey, I don't even have to commit commit a felony. You know, they're really great at it. So let's talk about those criminals for a moment. Um, we've seen a lot around dark webs, some being shut down, but some still persisting. So talk to me a little bit about how you've seen law enforcement react to dark web markets. What makes these difficult to find, difficult to infiltrate, but what are you seeing as far as the takedowns that we've seen? Alpha Bay we had, I think it was two years ago, Dream Market recently, I believe, was shut down. Talk to me about what you're seeing as far as these marketplaces, you know, expanding and contracting. Well, first and foremost, I'd have to say it's speculation, right? I've, I've always kind of wondered, you know, what, what what's that final kind of moment where law enforcement comes in and, like, pulls the plug. Like what, you know, what decision is it? Are they too big? Did they get too many complaints? Is it that they've moved into, there's too much fentanyl being sold through there? Um, is it that they've collected enough, you know, forensics about the actual forum itself that they can actually make the move? Um, you know, Dream Market, you know, Hansa, those are, those are really interesting stories, right? We know that allegedly in that scenario, law enforcement was able to move into a specific market, keep it up, right? Right. For some extended period of time and collect all of the data around the threat actors, right? It's, it's And no one knew. Um, you know, What's going on with the kick-ass market right now? It's up, it's up, down, it's all over the place, right? I don't know. Um, again, pure speculation, I don't know. I think law enforcement really knows that, right? Uh, if I had to guess, it's all about attribution. Um, you know, when does it get too big? Uh, if they don't leave it up, it's a valid source, right? We, we all, you know, I'm sure that they, law enforcement has that kind of, discussion about maybe taking on botnet takedowns, right? You know, we take it down, we lose a legitimate source of, of data about these criminals and they go further underground. Um, maybe it's just lack of ability. Maybe it's lack of knowledge, lack of funding. What other trends are you seeing when it comes to the dark web markets, particularly around the products that they are selling or even the cybersecurity side of things. I mean, all of these markets tend to have their drug markets, but then there are the cards and the exploits and things like that. So on the cybersecurity side, what are you seeing when it comes to those trends? Is it still the same prices for card numbers? Have they grown? Have they gone down? And what are you seeing in terms of exploits as well? Yeah, I, uh, I think that, that uh, you know, uh, against pure speculation, some of it I do have some specific research around that threat actors themselves, they are, they're moving forward. They're moving forward very, very well, particularly in botnet, right? Okay. Uh, for example, 
uh, traditionally, up until recently, a username and a password to, let's say, Chase accounts. You know, X amount of dollars you get, and it's sold in escrow, right? The threat actor is like, I guarantee you it's good, right? You know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so confident of it, I'll let a third party hold it, and until you tell me that guy it's okay, he'll get, release the money, right? Um, well, I, you know, we, we're seeing in the underground economy these shops move past that, right? That, uh, you know, the financial institutions are getting good at seeing username and password, but they're, they're measuring the environment of the source of the credentials, right? And if anything is off, then they're gonna step up and challenge that, that individual with secret questions or whatever, right? So we're now seeing shops recognize that there's these vectors that you know financial institutions use to determine if it's really you. For example, your resolution's different on your screen your IP or you have this MD5 hash or these cookies are missing. So now we're seeing uh, the traditional threat actor, what used to just sell kind of more commodity-based username and password, now they're selling actual environments of the individual, of the users, right? So you get the identity of the individual, you get the credentials, and then you get a little browser plugin that you can load their identity in. Therefore, enabling you to bypass two-factor authentication. Wow. Interesting. Right. So that's, we know that they're, they are, and we're seeing this through botnet. We, 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 we focus a tremendous amount of, uh, of resources on botnet. So the underground economy is, uh, it's alive. It's adapting. It's, it's, it moves. It's a lot like our own economy. How do we secure ourselves from getting stolen? like that? Well, I mean, naturally, uh, partnering with a threat intelligence company like, like InfoArmor, um, our advanced threat intelligence team, monitoring those those disclosures, those those compromised credentials in the, in the underground economy is, is, is a really, really great thing. Um, reducing our digital exposure, I'm a big believer in that right now, right? We're starting to see what's what's going on in social media, it's pretty concerning to me, right? The, the amount of data shared just through SDKs that, that social media organizations are willing to share and, uh, and capitalize on. Um, so I, I, I'm a big believer in, 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 in trying to reduce your digital identity, put it in a place that you run, like Silo D or something. Don't let these large organizations be the owner of your data. It's it's a real hard balance, right? We want the toys, mm -hmm. but you know we have to look at consequences. So, sort of shifting gears now, uh, talking about how uh, InfoArmor is a part of Allstate, uh, with Allstate being a big uh, insurance company and having that folded into their offerings. Talk to me a little bit about the trend that you're seeing there because we've seen with your company, with Allstate, we see the commercials for Experian and dark web searches. And we, well, we could talk about the validity of that. That's a different conversation. It's becoming more and more of a conversation about protecting people and protecting yourselves through 
like the lens of insurance. It, we know yeah. we we see enterprise cyber insurance, but do you think that we're going to see more and more of consumer cyber insurance come online in maybe five or ten years? Boy, that's an excellent question. I, 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 I what I can say is uh, uh, Allstate uh, is very, very, very focused on digital safety. My my humble opinion is our next frontier is privacy, right? It's almost like we are first generation social media users. And, and you know, there might be a scenario in 10 years where we all go, oh, that was probably a pretty bad idea, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, you know, I've even heard people say I'm worn for my children, right? There's, there's a generation literally sacrificed that just gave everything. It, I, I find it astonishing that people are worried about what the NSA are doing. Meanwhile, they've agreed to terms on their on their phone that allows some private organization that they really technically know nothing about to to, click, to take everything. To take so, everything. do you have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Do you, no. do you use any of that? No. Uh, I have a Facebook account, but it's, it's certainly not on um, on my mobile device. Right? Those 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 mobile devices themselves they collect everything. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I think that you, you know, I, I love, I love social media. I'm just, I'm just, I'm really concerned about where this data goes. And I'm not sure that the consumers are there yet. And I think that, I, I'm guessing that, that big social media, you know, they're smart, they're wealthy. I think they're starting to wonder what, we're gonna have to make some changes before you know, the cries of, of our consumers do, you know. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I worry about privacy, and I really love the all-state route of, of, of going towards privacy. Um, I, I couldn't really comment on, on insurance. I, but I do think that it's worth talking about that it's, it's you know, cyber insurance is like shooting barrel of the fish for, for companies right now. I, you know, I, I've looked at some that, that pay for ransomware. And I'm like, Not astonished. great, yeah. Astonished at that, right? You, you don't patch your, your, your systems and you're, you're, you know, you're negligent and your insurance company takes care of it for you. It seems like there's gonna be a day of reckoning there. Probably. So, Christian, we end every interview with a random question and you kind of got to this a little bit, so you can't say anything like technology-wise or cybersecurity-wise, but what is something that you refuse to share? I refuse to share my phone with anyone. It's, it's, it's mine, I guess, you know. I, I'm kind of a germaphobe. I feel like now I want to go to so dinner funny. with you, steal your french fries, and like take your phone. <laughs> and start you text know, messaging people. Love, yeah, but- <laughs> I mean, that's all I want to do now. <laughs> but, I, no, I've always, like, whenever I go out to eat with people, I really admire, you know, there'll be like, oh, you got to try this. And, and the other yeah, like, yeah, pass. Like, yeah, yeah, the other people, like, with their fork, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, they, <laughs> and they just, like, dig right in. And the two of them are, like, oblivious. And, you know, the other one's like, oh, that's excellent. I wish I had. Meanwhile, I'm going, that's a Ew. really risky thing to do. It's flu season, you know. So I, I, I don't like sharing Really appreciate you hopping aboard with us and hope we talk to you soon. Honored. Thank you. Thank you. So joining Greg and I is Joe Saunders, co-founder and CEO of RunSafe. 
and he's here to announce with Cyber Scoop um, an exciting project called Run Safe Pwned Index. Um, Joe, you want to tell us about it? What it is? Well, sure. Uh, and we're releasing this in partnership with CyberScoop on Wednesday at RSA. Uh, but the Run Safe Pwn Index is meant to be the Dow Jones Industrial Average for uh, exploits on the dark web marketplace. So, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, have a sense for how uh, exploits might be trending. What we want to do is really get in front of that and really uh, be the leading indicator of how hacker economics and exploits in particular are changing over time. Yeah, it's really interesting because we've talked about them on the podcast before, Jen, when it comes to the dark web exploits, or you see a lot of these companies that, whether it's RSA or Black Hat, they get out in front and say, we want a million dollars for iOS exploits, or we want two million to go... Uh, you know, a backdoor signal, like that's what we want. And, and that's fine, like that, that's a, a, a business and there's some marketing behind that, but obviously there's a bounty out there for zero days. But when you start talking about those high-end prices, that's one thing when, you know, it's one thing when you talk about those high-end prices, but then well, what are we really talking about when we're talking about the marketplace? There's not really a good sense of, what is the price tag on just the overall commodity market for this stuff? So uh, Joe and and CyberScoop, uh, we're going to explore this, and I'm really excited to see what we're diving into. So you announced this earlier this week, and, and you released a first index. Greg, was there anything that was surprising in it? Uh, anything you were really excited to read about? So I wouldn't say that it was surprising in the fact that mobile exploits are obviously more than uh, any of the other exploits that Joe's company has looked at. And that's really interesting in the fact that just because of all the data that sits on our phones. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations at RSA talking about how mobile is the thing that you need to protect because all of that data is so rich. I mean, think about if somebody popped your phone, Jen, all of the data that they could pull off of that. Obviously, yeah. So obviously the value there is a lot higher than a lot of the other things that you could do in terms of enterprise or business networks or uh, things like that. And Joe, I, I mean, I'd love to hear your insight here too with uh, with some of the information that uh, you pulled for us. I also want to know how much my um, stealing my phone data is going for these days. <laughs> well, it certainly is. There's uh, a lot of uh, rich data that can be used from, from mobile devices and a lot of people, uh, you know, there's so many, you know, if you look at uh, encrypted messaging apps, uh-huh. uh, those are high targets and, you know, for, for different reasons. People are trying to find information. You know, nation states are trying to find out yeah. what's happening inside encrypted messaging apps uh, but it also surprises me just how the the various exploits that might affect an enterprise uh, is actually you know kind of a significant uh, set of insights and what you need to protect and one of the things from my perspective is you know you don't know what the next exploits are but you, you may have some indication of what what's coming next based on you know things we see in the the run safe pwn index for example uh, one of the trends for an enterprise perspective is virtual machine escape and with the proliferation of virtual machines and the virtualization of IT resources virtual machine escape means you can gain control of servers and data and applications 
that were otherwise contained in a virtual machine. And for me, that's a big insight. People aren't thinking about you know the tens of thousands of customers that use virtual machines today to operate their infrastructure. They're not thinking about the exploits underneath them. They're thinking about the productivity. So what other information is this um, index going to contain on a quarterly basis? Yes, it's a quarterly basis. And what you're going to see is you're going to see basically uh, a price that is attached to uh, the index and sort of the sub-indexes. There's going to be a mobile exploit index, a server exploit index, and an embedded system index. And when we say embedded systems, think IoT devices like Nest or your smart TV or things like that. Um, and all of that is going to be weighted and that creates the overall index overall. So for the first index, we have a weighted average of about $15,000 for any sort of dark web exploit. So the mobile exploit is a little bit higher. It's around $20,000 and the server exploits around $13,000. We're going to see sort of we're going to see some of the embedded systems prices in later versions, but for now we have a starting point for the RunSafe Pwn index at $15,118. How did you derive that number? So it's based on all the exploits we collected on multiple data sources. So certainly dark web marketplaces, uh, private payout services, and then other groups that we know are tracking information. We aggregated all that, and we came up with a methodology that does a weighted average across the types of exploits by server and by mobile device. And then, uh, as Greg said, uh, we plan to kind of break that out into embedded devices as well with all the threats against ICS systems and, and all the connected IoT devices and whatnot that's out there. That's obviously something that I think people are going to really want to be able to track going forward. How does that shift over time? Yeah, and I really want to stress how important the metric really is because we talk about standards all the time and how there's a lack of standards on a bunch of different aspects yeah. in cybersecurity. And there's a reason it's called the dark web. Like it's it's tough to get in there and really get a hand on what information is out there and if that information is in fact factual. So this is a good way to put a, a representation of how much money how much value there is in going after certain systems. Because again, like we were saying, the million, two million, the top end stuff, that's always going to be there, but you're never going to find out if somebody turned around and paid that or if there's even going to be an exploit that ever earns that price. But right. there are exploits out there. There are firms and there are criminals really selling these exploits. So what is that price going for and what really is the, the risk evaluation that I need to make when it comes to the different ways that I can be attacked? Well, Joe, Greg, I'm really excited about tracking this over time. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. So, Jen, to close it out, do you have any other takeaways from RSA? Well, my highlight from RSA is not cybersecurity related, um, but it is the puppies that were on the showroom floor with one of the, the companies that were exhibiting. I missed that altogether. Yeah. Where was that? Um, that was actually one of my portfolio companies, Smart Quotient. Um, they actually um, did this last year as well and adopted it all out all of the pups um, that were from a local animal shelter. Wow, that that's re that's really nice. How did I miss that? That's incredible. That uh, <laughs> that's the, there are few things that are going to draw more people than uh, a booth full of puppies. And there was a booth of cats. So the cats, I think, stayed for the duration of the conference. 
the puppies, I think, came in for a couple hours. So, which is probably why you missed them. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, wow. I was going to jump into like this deeply philosophical discussion about where I think the cybersecurity market's headed, but. Let's jump into that. Oh, um, really? <laughs> I don't know if we can talk about it after puppies, but um, no. It, you know, because you probably you watch on the floor like I did and you, you can't help but run into um, 10 or 20 or 30 companies doing something really, really similar. Um. And I don't know about you, but it just makes me think, how many customers are there really to go around for these companies? Yeah, um, that's what I was going to get to. You, you're, you're hinting at something that, that has been going through my mind this week is that, is, is this what a bubble looks like? Because there's just so many companies out there that, yeah, how, like, how, is this market still going to grow that much? Like it, it just seems to me that either the, the floor is going to be ripped out from underneath everybody soon, or there's going to need to be like a massive consolidation because I, I just don't understand um, how, how this market could get any bigger. So I, so every single panel I've, I've been on where it's talked to anything about cybersecurity so all kinds of people have heard me say this, but I just, and I've been saying it for years. And so, and it hasn't happened yet. So maybe it's not going to happen, but I just feel like we're throwing money at companies. Um, and I say, when I say we, I mean, all venture capital, not, not my fund. Right. Collectively. But like, we're all just, you know, writing big checks um, to companies to get them to a point. And I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies out there that have, you know, 30, 40, 50, $100 million in venture capital that are stuck um, out of revenue number. And maybe that's 5 million, maybe that's $50 million. But if it's not going to grow, um, you know, these companies aren't going to get acquired or raise more capital and sort of go. And so I think, you know, what we're going to see is we're going to see a private equity firm come in and roll up, you know, five, six companies doing the same thing. Um you know, letting go um, or consolidating staff, if you will, um, and consolidating product and 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 growing it from there, um, which I think is what's going to actually happen to this industry at some point soon. Uh, but I've been saying soon for three or four years. Yeah, so. I mean, you would think uh, we have been talking about this for a while as an industry that it, it can't continue to go like this, can it? And yet it all still does. I mean, I mean, it's not a problem that's going away, right? It's a problem that's growing. There's more and more breaches um, every day. And we're seeing more and more problems with the way we've, I mean, the simple things like cloud, we've the simple ways that we've just not configured things properly, um, you know, a few years ago, and then we're seeing problems now. I, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of that. Sometimes I just look around and I feel like everybody's walking a, a, a fine line and and it, it could teeter off uh, into a bubble, but then again, it's maybe not. Actually, you know, the best way I, I was talking to somebody who said, honestly, it feels this industry feels like 1928, where people are just not seeing what's coming over the bend, and it's just stacks and stacks of money, and who cares? Who who really cares? And I don't know. Yeah, if the bubble's going to pop, if there's ever going to be that reckoning, because, like you said, the threats just continue to grow. 
So what do you what do you do when the threats continue to grow? I mean, the industry. Um, yeah, there's a great there's a great CB Insights graph um, that shows like new entrants into the market, not in terms of companies, but in terms of venture capitalists and investors. And I just think that's so telling when you start seeing um, just a mass influx of um, first time investors in cybersecurity. And I and I'm making up this number because I don't remember it off the top of my head, but I want to say it's something like there were 450 new first-time investors in cybersecurity last year or the year before. That's a huge number of venture funds. That's nuts. I never made a venture capital, I mean, never made a cybersecurity investment before that decided, hey, you know, let's let's throw a bunch of money into a cybersecurity company. Because look, I mean, there's, if you're not living and breathing um, cybersecurity, it's, it's hard to, because the companies have struggled too. It's hard to really tell the difference between some of these companies. I mean, really for everybody, but certainly if you don't know anything about this at all, I, I think it's even a bigger struggle. Well, and that's why we're here to, to sort of help people uh, yeah. figure it out and, and to get over that struggle. But speaking of struggle, the struggle is coming to a close for uh, the end of the week. Um, I am tapped out. Uh, I'm ready to get on a plane, head back home, rest my head and, and gear up for next week. I know you're headed to South by Southwest to, to go yeah, find yeah. some other uh, some other ventures. We'll keep trying to uh, bring some clarity to that struggle. But uh, for but, now, um, I think we should like rest up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you are headed to South by Southwest and you'll still be there on the 14th, um, I am throwing a little um, a little party with um, the authors of Tribe of Hackers. Um, we had Marcus Carey on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, so if you want to come hang out with uh, Marcus and I, um, check out my Twitter. I'm sure there's information about it there. Great. Go party with Jen. Go say hi to Marcus. Go pick up Tribe of Hackers can't recommend all three any higher and (laughs) thank you all for hanging with us through our extended rsa edition episode thank you so much and as always we'll be back next week stay curious